The theme I'd like to speak about tonight is freedom from fear and anxiety. I just want to explore a little bit uh, that very real possibility for us, a real possibility for our lives to live, uh, to move towards, to open to a freedom from fear. Perhaps the first and obvious thing to say is just that fear is something that we all know. We've all tasted fear. I doubt there's ever been a human being who has not tasted fear. It's very common. Uh, We may think or believe perhaps there are some beings who have never known that. But even the Buddha tells this short kind of insignificant sounding story about the time of his practice before his enlightenment and he just describes himself practicing in the forest sitting and walking, sitting and walking and a bird would rustle some leaves on the ground and great fear arose, trembling, he says, trembling and if he was sitting he would want to get up and run away and if he was walking, he would want to leave the walking path. But he's, so he's just describing that, but then he says, but he worked with it, and if he was sitting, he stayed sitting. And if he was walking, he stayed walking. And it's interesting, when we go into it, how many different kinds of fear there are. There seem to be so many different kinds of fear. So many things we can be afraid of. Certainly, we can be afraid in relation to our body, of the aging process, of illness, of pain in the body, definitely. Uh, We can also be afraid of pleasure in the body. It's also true. We can be afraid of our emotions. What might come up? Will I be able to handle it? We can certainly be afraid of the views that others have of us or might have of us. Will they think I'm stupid? Will I say the wrong thing? Will I do the wrong thing? Do they think I look okay? Or the view that we perhaps fear we might have of ourselves. What if I discover and then see myself, maybe I am bad. Maybe I am a failure. Can be afraid of different forms in life. So it could be afraid of the form of a meditation retreat of seven or eight days in silence. Can be afraid of the form of a certain work situation or any form, a relationship form or being out of that form. Seems like we can be afraid of anything. There's a, a story in from one of the Hindu traditions. And in this particular tradition, they believed that the guru, the the teacher, could bestow enlightenment, full liberation, could bestow that by, if he so chose, uh, to a disciple by touching them, by looking at them. And so this particular guru was sitting with his disciples
Can you hear at the back? No. Ah, okay. So I'm talking about fear and anxiety. Do you get that much? <laughs> um, I'll just move this closer. Okay, thank you. So there was this guru, and it was believed that he could, in this tradition, bestow enlightenment on his disciples, if he so chose. And so he was sitting around with his disciples, and they were silent or talking, whatever, and he said, whoever wants complete liberation from the ego, step forward, and I will grant it. No one moved. Second time, Whoever wants complete liberation from the ego, silence. Third time, nothing. It was just silence. And then very quietly he said, the offer is withdrawn. (laughs) I think he was calling their bluff. I I don't know. I think he was calling their bluff a little bit. And actually pointing to something. Look, we can be afraid of anything, even freedom, even even this, this promise of freedom. But what the Buddha's uh, little, you know, seemingly innocuous little story, what it tells us is how fear is workable. We can work with it. It's not something we have to always be a victim to. That's, that's part of what we get out of that story. And I think we can have a sense of the workability of fear. It's almost like even in the midst of fear, sometimes it's possible almost to have a sense, a whisper, a whisper of that freedom is possible. We don't have to be bound by this. Maybe also the whisper, that fear, and what fear is telling us is not really the truth of things. It's not really the truth. And we may have seen, I'm sure many of you have seen, the, the sort of inverse relationship of fear and love. So we may sense when there's fear that some, something has happened. The heart is closing its capacity to love. Some people say it's either fear or love. There's a, very, there's a very direct relationship in a way. And we see the inverse of that. We see the opposite of that. The, the very proportional relationship of violence and fear. We see that in animals, we see it in, in individuals, and we see it in uh, you know, countries and political groups and ideological groups and all that. And I think that for all of us, for all of us trying to live consciously, trying to open to freedom in our lives, I think a question comes, and it's very necessary, but it's coming out of kindness. It's really coming out of kindness. There's a question we need to ask ourselves and need to reflect. Am I challenging fear enough? Am I challenging it? enough? Am I challenging it deeply enough in my life? And it's not coming out of should, and it's not coming out of pressure, it's coming out of kindness. It's really coming out of kindness. But to ask this question, not just once, many, over and over in one's life, am I challenging enough? Am I too tolerant in my life of fear? Now that doesn't mean we don't accept the existence of fear, because I said even the Buddha had it before he was enlightened. Everyone has it. We need to accept it as a fact. 
That, that's not the same as not challenging it, not inquiring into it. How much, how much is my life constricted by fear? These are, these are hard questions. How much is my life constricted by fear? Some of it may be really obvious. Some of it may not be that obvious. So oftentimes fear is around. Sometimes fear is around. We don't even realize it's around. We're not even aware of it. We don't recognize its presence. Sometimes we don't even realize that we don't have a choice. We don't have choices in situations because of the presence of fear. And we're, we're not even aware of the absence of choice for ourselves. person, a new friend, and years ago she inherited a lot of money, and then quite some time later we were talking about happiness, and she was not feeling very happy in her life, and we were sort of talking about well, what, what brings happiness, and talked about different things. At one point, uh, generosity came up as a factor that actually brought happiness, brought a sense of well-being to the heart, and I sort of lightly made the suggestion that, that you know, maybe she wanted want to donate some of them. <laughs> Not to me, <laughs> just in general. And it was funny, it was just like, it was a complete no-go area. I mean, since then, it's quite different. But uh, it was just interesting how it just wasn't a choice. It wasn't an option. It was just no, no entry. Sometimes fear in our life is actually masked as desire. It looks like desire. It's, it's, it's fear, but it's cloaked in desire. Uh, We can see this in many different ways. You may even see it here a little bit on the retreat. Sometimes people around uh, around food. So there's not a lot put out at tea, and we're not kind of in control of what we eat here. And so sometimes either at lunch or or at tea, there's a sense of wanting more, taking more. And it looks like desire, if it happens. It looks like desire, but actually it's just fear underneath. I have, I have another friend who um, does a lot of work in the theatre. That's her profession. She acts and directs and things. And for been doing that since she was quite young. And for many years, it looked like it was great passion, great passion for, for the whole theatre world. But what she slowly began to realize was that there was actually a fear of what would happen if she wasn't so involved and so much in the spotlight, would there be a kind of emptiness there? And that all this momentum, or not all of it, certainly not all of it, a lot of the momentum was was kind of running away from this fear of emptiness, fear of feeling uh, impoverished, of feeling barren and dry inside. And it looked like passion. Actually, again, she's, that was quite a while ago, and she's moved through that and come to, to a, a genuine passion. And passion is, is something you know extremely important in our lives to connect with a sense of genuine passion. So I want to look tonight at a little bit of the the possible approaches uh, to, to fear, and and they're complementary. So none of them are. It's not mutually exclusive; just complementary. So the first one is mindfulness, and mindfulness, particularly of the experience of fear itself, the physical experience of fear itself, and I'll go into this more, without what can often happen when fear is around, we we wonder, why am I afraid? Why is this here? Why, why, why? The mind kicks in. So this level is just about connecting with the basic experience. The second one is mindfulness of the, our reactions to fear. That, 
and I'll go into this, I'll go into all of them in more detail. Often when fear is around, it's unpleasant, and we're actually afraid of fear. We fear fear. It comes up, and it's something we just, it's very difficult to deal with, and we just are actually pushing it away. And the third one is more about challenging fear in more direct ways. It's less about mindfulness, because we actually cannot expect mindfulness to cure everything. It's extremely powerful, but it's not going to take care of everything. And that's also not what the Buddha taught. So first first question, and it's a kind of basic question, but what actually is fear and anxiety? We, we use these words, and we... We know what it. We think we know what it is, but oftentimes we don't hang out long enough with it to really to really know exactly what's going on when fear is around. So, what do we notice if if we can turn towards it and actually just have a very open view, a very careful, thorough look at what's going on when fear is there? What do we notice? Usually, there are sensations in the body. You know, we all know the the, uh, tummy has butterflies, the the heart may be thumping, maybe the hands are sweaty, or whatever, uh, other other symptoms. The sensations in the body, usually they're unpleasant. Okay, they're unpleasant sensations, and then because of their unpleasantness, as we were talking, Christine was talking about Vedana this morning. Because they're unpleasant, we we have a reaction to that unpleasantness. We want to get rid of it. So there's the body sensations the unpleasantness of them and our reaction to them body second aspect that's almost always there with fear but not not always is what's happening with thought in the realm of thought there's often a lot of thought around when fear is around and again often a lot of it has to do with the future a lot of future thinking even if it's just a few moments from now or sometimes it's just years from now thought and it's often future related but within this, perhaps, is a whole bag of assumptions and beliefs that often they're not always, they're not seen, they're not fully conscious. That's all in the realm of thought. And this is kind of operating, buzzing around in, in the thick of fear. And again, generally, the thoughts are unpleasant, they have an unpleasant Vedana, and we have a reaction to them. We have a reaction, we want to get rid of them. There's the body of sensations and the, um, and the reaction, the thoughts and the reaction. The third aspect, perhaps, of fear that goes on is there's a kind of shrinking of the, the, the felt mental space. So, you, I'm sure many of you know this experience. You have to present something or perform something, and you're up there on the stage, and suddenly uh, the brain has shrunk to the size of a chickpea. And, and then you have to deliver whatever it is you're supposed to deliver. Generally, human beings like a, a more, more sense of space in the mind, more, more sense of expansiveness. And so there's this shrinking of the mental space. Again, it's unpleasant, and there's a reaction to it. All that, all that, that whole constellation we call fear. Now, I'm not going through all that just to be over, overly complex. It turns out that these are different ways in, different ways to working with fear and and moving towards freedom. So When there's fear around, and just to say a small point, it can seem like it 
because of this shrinking of the mental space, that it takes up everything. It takes up the whole space. It, it can seem, when fear is strong, that the whole, everything is fear. It's just covered everything. It's important to puncture that view a little bit. So there will be body sensations, if the fear is strong enough. There will be body sensations. There will be somewhere in the body, generally, that there are no fear sensations. So, for example, you know, the earlobes or, or the end of the nose or the toes. Toes rarely feel afraid. <laughs> no one's yet told me that. But. And it's important to put the consciousness there, even just for a moment or two, to, to, to puncture, as I said, to puncture the view that fear is taking up everything. Just to remind us that there is something else. There is something else. There's, there's a place of, of some relief. But then we also need to turn around and really look at the fear, really be with the fear, really be, bring mindfulness to it. Now, as I said, usually when there's fear, there's fear of fear, so we're not going to want to do that. Uh, but this is, this is a very important uh, aspect. Can we practice, and it really is a practice, being mindful of the sensations of fear, of the unpleasant sensations, so that the mind will be doing what it's doing, and we don't have to fight that, but just keep coming back to the sensations, their unpleasantness, and just slowly, over time, what can really happen is that we, we can develop a capacity, we're developing a capacity to accommodate the unpleasant sensations of fear. So that gradually our capacity is, is literally enlarging, and we feel we can... We can contain this in awareness, in mindfulness. It's really a practice. Sometimes even in in meditation, it may be really skillful when there's some calmness, if if there's some calmness, uh, to actually sacrifice or feel like one's sacrificing that calmness a little bit. Here's the calmness, the stillness, everything's going fine. Bring to mind whatever it is brings up fear, and just drop it in. Drop it into the calmness. And then watch it ricocheting around, particularly the body. Watch it ricocheting. Why? To develop, because we're interested in developing this skill, this capacity of accommodating the unpleasant sensations of fear. And the good thing about, one of the good things about meditation practice, about sitting and walking, is they are very limited forms. So in terms of fear and what we might be afraid of, they they in a lot of cases, they're going to be very. Sa- it's very very safe environment. When we're sitting in meditation on the cushion, I don't have to say anything clever. I don't have to appear a certain way. I don't have to perform. I don't have to look good. It's safe. So knowing it's safe, uh, or the walking is safe, we can drop in the fear and just. We know it's a safe container. We can just watch it ricocheting and develop that capacity. So that. Uh, knowing there's no need to act. There's no need to act. I don't need to act on this thing that I'm afraid of. So that, over time, we really develop a sense of confidence with fear. Confidence with the sensations of fear. Because that's often what's missing with fear. We, we do not feel confident. It's around and it has tremendous authority because we feel next to zero confidence with it. So the more we can do that, and it's really a practice, the more we develop that confidence.
When we're doing that, we're also going against the grain, as I said, of, of this fear of fear. We're, we're pushing against that. So I want to explore a little bit more this relationship that we have to the fear. So in, in the Dharma, what's happening is always important, but our relationship to what's happening is as important, perhaps more important. What is the relationship to the fear and to the sensations of the fear? Usually, as I said, it's aversion or fleeing. Uh, We want to flee the unpleasantness. Now that's totally understandable. The only problem is that it's actually not neutral to have an aversive an aversive relationship with fear. It's not a neutral factor. Our relationship with things is not a neutral factor. So fleeing the fear makes the experience of the fear increase, unfortunately. It actually increases the felt difficulty of the experience. Our aversion to fear is part of the constellation of fear. It's not something separate. It's part of the constellation. So we flee these sensations in the body... Where do we go? Right up into the, into the head and the thoughts. All the energy goes up into, a lot of the energy goes up into the thoughts. The thoughts start gathering momentum, swirling around because we're fleeing the anxious sensations in the body, and start spiraling. The thoughts start gathering momentum. Usually, in that context, the kind of thoughts that are around are not very helpful there's an increase. The whole thing builds. So the reaction, the reaction, our reaction of aversion, of fleeing, of fear of fear, is actually part of the anxiety itself. They're not two separate things. And we can see, in medit- we can really explore this in meditation. This is one of the amazing gifts of, of practice. What we see is, when I take away the reaction, when I lessen the reaction of aversion, if I really take away the reaction, the fear cannot support itself. It's supported by my fear of fear. And not to believe anyone who says that. Just to, We can check this out in, in our own practice. So this fear of fear, am I also perhaps putting a pressure for it to be different for whatever reason, putting pressure on the situation. Am I judging myself because there's fear around? I shouldn't be afraid. I should be over this. No one else is afraid of this kind of thing. Whatever the story is, there's the pressure of judgment. Pressure acts like a pressure cooker, basically. It just, it just adds to the, the fuel, adds to the, what's feeding the fear. What perhaps am I assuming? What am I assuming that the presence of fear means about me, about my practice, my spiritual success or failure or whatever. What am I assuming it means about me? Because there's fear, and maybe it's an irrational fear or whatever. And remember that seemingly uh, innocuous, seemingly insignificant story of the Buddha. And you just have to reflect, this guy, he doesn't say exactly when it happened, but this guy was somewhere in the time between leaving the palace and complete unexcelled liberation, which is six years later. So somewhere from between one day and six years away from complete unexcelled liberation, and he still had that kind of fear when a you know, squirrel moved in the leaves or whatever. 
And we tend to think, what does it mean about me? Well, look at the Buddha. I find that very reassuring. <laughs> so working with the, the reactions that we have, what about, is, is there the possibility of kindness? Is there the possibility of bringing kindness in? Uh, kindness into the whole situation. We've been introducing the metta practice in the days here, and we say, you know, may I be well, may I be happy, etc., may I be peaceful. The I that we're speaking about, when there's fear, that's who I am right then, right in that moment. It's the I including the fear. It's not I when the fear is away or excluding the fear. Can we bring, can we realize the humanity of it? As I said, it's so common, so common. Can we realize the humanity of fear and include Include all of ourselves in the kindness. The factor of kindness, when there's something like fear around, is extremely powerful. Can there also be a kind of kindness and acceptance, a kindness to the fear itself? So not so much to, to this person feeling the fear, but to the fear itself. What does that mean? What would it look like? What would happen if I totally emphasized, totally went overboard emphasizing acceptance towards the fear, kindness towards the fear, complete and utter welcoming, this sounds bonkers, I know, complete welcoming of the fear, opening the doors of consciousness to the sensations of the fear. I'm talking about the physical sensations now. Letting the mind just be and just coming back to the sensations. Completely opening opening to that, emphasizing totally the welcoming. Then there's kindness towards the fear. What's happening then? We're deliberately going against, undermining the fear of the fear, deliberately. So again, this, this is, I find, and a lot of people find, this very, very powerful way into working with fear. Not so much about the precise noting of where it is and where it ends and exactly what it feels like, but emphasizing the other aspect of mindfulness, really the acceptance part, really, really strongly. Again, like, like a lot of this, like most of this, it's a practice. We can really develop it. But we, it's very easy to forget all this. I mean, even after years of meditation, I was, a few years ago I was doing a two-week per- personal solitary retreat at Guy House, and I was not very well physically, not, not very well at all. And... After the retreat, I was going to go to India. That was my tickets and plans and everything. And I really wanted to go because there was a work retreat I wanted to do at a leprosy community, and I didn't want to miss it. And I had been to India about 20 years before or so, just once, and got very ill, and took me ages to get better, and it actually never was really the same since then. When I noticed on this retreat, it was just a sort of, ongoing undercurrent of apprehension. How will my health be? How will my health be? And it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't seem to go away. And being, you know, experienced meditator or whatever, I tried all my meditative kung fu, uh, <laughs> acquired over years, and nothing was working. It was still just this very, nothing particularly strong. It was just in the background, this kind of apprehension. And then, you know, realized, basically, I was trying to get rid of it. 
you know, in sophisticated ways or whatever. But basically, I was trying to get rid of it. When I realized that, I said, okay, completely embrace this apprehension, completely embrace it. And it, it really began to shift, and it didn't take very long. And the first part, it was the sort of image that came to me was uh, as if the fear was a very young part of me that didn't want to get ill. And then it was just really embracing this, and then the sense of, you know, so to speak, me and my uh, little boy who was very afraid, we're going to go to India together. And, <laughs> and we would be in India together, checking out, and, and all the excitement came up, and, and the, 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 you know, the passion for wanting to go, and, and the, the openness to it. It really came back. And the fear was still there, and actually after a while that faded too. But it was just in that piece of, of oh yeah, we need to embrace it. Okay, so I talked about this mental constriction that happens with fear, that the, the mind shrinks, the space of the mind seems to shrink, and it feels very uncomfortable, very paralyzing. I've noticed uh, both for myself in the past and in, in others, um, there can be, and this isn't always the case, there are many more factors in, uh, at play, but there can be periods of time in our life when anxiety becomes a habit. Somehow the whole system has got into a kind of groove, like an, if those of you who are old enough to remember you know, gramophone records, <laughs> uh, it, the needle can get stuck in a groove and it just kind of repeats. And it can sometimes be the same thing with the sort of uh, physical mental system. It's just kind of get, it keeps, keeps falling into these grooves of anxiety. Sometimes we don't even know what, what it is we're anxious about. It finds itself in a groove, and then we go out looking for something to be anxious about. I must be, well, I feel anxious. What is it? That, not all the time, but sometimes that anxiety kind of as a habit can be there it has the potential to arise when there's a climate, a kind of ongoing climate of self-judgmentalism, etc., of harshness to oneself, lack of acceptance. There seems to be a real connection. It's almost like that inner atmosphere of judgmentalism of oneself, harshness, um, is the breeding ground. It's like a, like a swamp, actually. The, the fear comes out of that. This is quite, I find this quite interesting. Love, in, in the sense of metta, of loving kindness, when that's there as a quality in the heart, it's almost inherently, we could say, it's calming. It has a soothing quality. Now, by definition, anxiety is the opposite. It's anything but calming. It's anything but soothing. Self-judgmental thoughts, inner harshness, inner critic, that kind of being very hard on oneself, tends to be very, feel very cramping and oppressive. It shares that quality of constricting the mental space. It shares that with fear. And that's one of the reasons why the, it's just a small skip from that kind of inner environment into fear. It's just, it just needs a couple of, couple of shifts and it's there because they share that quality. In addition, I think certain kinds of fear uh, come, are, are, are bred really from in an atmosphere of lack of self-love. So, and again, I've 
certainly known this in, in, in the past for myself, and I, I see it in others, I have seen it in others, this, how exaggerated and painful is the fear of failure when there's the inner self-judge, when that's very strong. Fear that we might discover the truth about ourselves, that we are actually deep down bad, worthless. Those kind of fears, they're very deep existential uh, fears about the self-view, really uh, can run riot, can can grow, can fester in in that atmosphere of a lack of self, a lack of self-love. So the huge importance for all kinds of reasons, huge necessity really for, for, for love, for kindness when working with fear, especially when fear and anxiety feel like an ongoing pattern in our lives, something that's quite recurrent. Huge place for, for love, for kindness to oneself, the, the meta practice, etc. So there's this constricting of the mental space it can be, when there's fear around, extremely skillful to give attention, literally give attention to physical space. So if we're sitting in here, that might mean opening the eyes and just looking at the space of the room, taking in the sense of the space of the room. Or going to listening. And again, we mentioned listening is often quite good at establishing a sense of spaciousness or opening a sense of spaciousness in in the consciousness. Or going outside and just looking at the sky and getting a real sense of space there. Why? When the awareness goes to space, the mind kind of follows it it, and it begins to, it literally begins to open up, can do, in spaciousness. And again, that will counter this, um, this constriction, this mental constriction. It will working against that, that particular aspect of fear. Sometimes, too, uh, if a fear is ongoing, if it's very persistent, we feel like under its thumb, it uh, can be really skillful to just not dwell on it, take ourselves out of that environment, get space that way, get some psychic space, so to speak. Go play squash or whatever. It's hard to really you know, be in your fear when you're... <laughs> panting around the squad. Play with someone much better than you and you have to... <laughs> uh, if you have some you know, creative, you know, artistic thing, just get involved in that or something you, you, know, you like to really get the mind involved in. Just take it away. Get some space and then maybe come back to it. So there's the mindfulness of the sensations. Exploring what fear is and our, developing our capacity to be with it. The, the whole gradual process of that. There is the investigation of the relationship that we have with it and countering the fear of the fear. There's the working with the constriction and, and seeing ways that that can open, loosen. I think we also need to challenge fear in a, in a more um, direct way, a more, uh, with more bravado. Sometimes, sometimes. So oftentimes fear is saying to us, do this or don't do that. And sometimes it's, it, there is the place for, if fear says don't do that, we do it. And if fear says do this, we don't do it. So 
again, we might think of the most extreme thing, but we can practice this in very small ways. Just practice small gestures of kind of just turning around to fear and saying, oh yeah? Uh, Standing up to it, going against, questioning its authority, questioning its power. So, It may be that this kind of environment, one wants to, you know, put this out there very lightly, it's certainly an option, but one may want to start exploring that kind of thing here, if one, if one wants to. Again, how much fear can there be around food? Maybe we realize, maybe we don't realize. Maybe we want to experiment a little bit with it. There's no, no should here, zero should all in the realm of investigation, of kindness, of exploration. Maybe you want to go, see, what happens if I go without a meal? Or sleep, how, how sometimes we can get very tense around our sleep, and if, we, if are we getting enough? Maybe one, one day just say, okay, I'll just have two hours less, just, just, and I'll be tired. Uh, or with generosity, as I talked about before, we have this uh, tradition of generosity in, in this um, in this particular meditation tradition, and oftentimes when 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 generosity is sort of a possibility in front of us, for many of us, for most of us, the the fear is well, I don't want to give too much. Fear of giving too much. Can we play with that? I had a yogi a few years ago who uh, gave to me gave what seemed like a a lot of dana, and um, I, I, you know, it's great. But <laughs> I felt uh, I felt a little bit uncomfortable. Felt like I wasn't quite sure where it was where it was coming from, so to speak. And we talked about it, and it was it turned out that there was actually a lot of fear about being perceived as someone who's not generous. And so she was kind of really trying to counter that. So it can be fear about all kinds of things. I said, can we? See what our particular flavor is and just, just play with it a little bit. Just explore it a little bit. So maybe sitting longer. You know, we have 45 minute or half an hour sessions. And no, no should here. No should. But maybe, what would it be to sit 10, 15 minutes longer? Or to sit every day? Sometimes it's, it's actually sitting less. So I remember sitting around with uh, a group of friends uh, some time ago and we were, they were talking, we were talking really, about, about daily practice and, you know, that sort of commitment. And Dave, one of the friends, sort of asked people, you know, do you sit every day and everything? And he came to me and said, do you sit every day, Rob? And I said, yeah, I sit every day. And then he said, well, when was, the, when was the last time you didn't sit? When was the last day you didn't sit? And I was like, hmm. And I remembered, ah, it was the day I was under general anesthetic. <laughs> well, okay, <laughs> But maybe it made me. It made me think: Is there is there actually a little tightness here? You know, am I am I, you know, holding on to this sort of precious, pristine radiance of mine that I've uh, cultivated? <laughs> 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 that maybe I've cultivated. You know, it can it can it can go anywhere. Fear can can snake around and go anywhere. And to kind of shake it up a little bit and just see. And then we have an option. How do we want? How do we want to work with this? So we can also challenge fear in the realm of thought. And when we're working in the realm of thought, it, it's really important to be 
quite uh, connected to the body, connect mindful of the body, from that anchoring we can then look at thought and, and begin to not be so pulled by it, work in more creative and skillful ways with thought. So, in the realm of thought, what am I believing? What am I believing? What am I assuming? What is going unquestioned about myself, about a situation, about an event, about others, about whatever it is in, in, in the situation of fear? What am I believing? What's going unquestioned? And how am I reacting to those beliefs? One of the things I struggle with is, uh, is Crohn's disease. I have Crohn's disease, which is, some of you may know, it's, it's just a, uh, a chronic disease. It's an ongoing disease which they haven't found a cure yet. And it comes and goes in waves, basically. So I'm fine for, you know, periods of time at the moment, long periods of time. And, and then other quite long periods when I'm really not very well. And I began to notice at a certain point some years ago, began to notice there's a sort of period when you feel like you're beginning to get ill and it's sort of on the edge, the symptoms are there, you're on the edge. And there's, there's a sense of fear, really, is coming up. And fear of getting ill. And I began to notice, well, what, what did, again, questioning the assumptions. And I realized there was a whole bunch of assumptions that, that were unchecked there. I believe, you know, the, the, the thoughts, the assumptions were, Crohn's, well, Crohn's, if I get ill... I won't be able to work. Uh, I won't be able to travel. I won't be able to um, eat you know, certain foods. Uh, I won't be able to... It will curtail my social life. It will sh- restrict my social life. And there were all these assumptions that were kind of just under the surface, so to speak. And I had to really kind of shake up the rug and have a look at them. And then I realized, well, how true is all that? How true is all that? And I'd look back at the past, the times I'd been ill, and actually did quite a lot of work. It usually took me much longer and was more complicated, but, you know, I did that. Um, Still had a social life and and intimate partner, you know, all that. Uh, Certainly true that I couldn't eat certain foods, but, you know, so what? Um... Travel. And still travel, thank you. Still traveled. Still, still travel and was more complicated, etc. But still did it. But yet the assumptions were were fueling the power of the fear because they were going unchecked, unquestioned. We can also sometimes go to the end of our thought chain. So there's thought in in, in terms of fear, and it, and it's it's going towards the future. And if such and such happens, or if such and such doesn't happen, then dot dot dot. And sometimes, that's, again, that's operating. We don't go to the end of the dot, dot, dot. And, and we have to turn... Sometimes we can turn around and say, well, so what if dot, dot, dot? And really, to, to, to have some... bravado. I, don't, I, you know, I can think of other words. but So what if they think I'm stupid? Really, so what? So what? So what if I fail? So what? So what if I'm tired tomorrow, if I don't get enough sleep? So what if I get ill and lose weight? 
So what sometimes for some people, so what if I die? You know, it's that, the, the sort of uh, challenging of fear can be so, uh, such a strength to it. I used to live in America, I've lived in Boston for 15 years, and I was living there when the terrorist attacks of 9-11 happened, and I'm sure many of you remember. The climate of fear that was around in, in the three, two, three days after that, those attacks, enormous, absolutely enormous. And, you know, quite understandable, but it felt like it just had a kind of manic momentum to it that was, uh, I don't know, just a little bit crazy. And there, there was a meeting of Buddhist Peace Fellowship in Boston, and a number of us went with other groups, and we had a peace vigil. There was quite a number of people went. And it was on a day where, I can't remember how they did it, uh, they used to have these different levels of alert. Is it red and, is it color? Yeah, red. So it was a maximum level alert for Boston, three days or two days or whatever it was after 9-11, and we all went and stood and had this peace vigil right underneath the tallest building in Boston, which, by the way, is an insurance building. <laughs> the two tallest buildings in Boston are insurance, which is just fear is big business. It's big business. <laughs> and we stood there and we had the peace vigil. And it was, it was almost as if, you know, this is mad and we're not going to get swept up in this madness. Just don't want to be swept up in this madness. So oftentimes, a lot of our fear is is connected with assumptions or, or is fueled by assumptions about what we need and, and particularly what we need to be happy. And this is a whole area that re- we really, really, all of us need to explore and, and very thoroughly, I think, very ruthlessly, you could say, almost. I was reading this article, I can't remember where it was, it might have been in the New York Times. It was about a high school in New York. I can't remember the name of it, and I can't remember the names of the other schools it was talking about. And there were, I think it was a boys' school, and there were boys in this school of about 12, or 11 or 12 or 13. And they had these special exams that they had to take at that age. And tremendous amount of pressure on them, tremendous amount of pressure. And the person who wrote the article was interviewing these boys and they were describing, I mean, quite extreme manifestations of sort of uh, stress, basically, and anxiety. And I I actually recognize it from my past, also having been sent to one of those kind of institutions. But one of the boys uh, was interviewed and he said something like, the exams were to, to split the students up into streams, so A stream for the sort of right students, whatever, B stream, etc. He said, if I don't get into the A stream, I can't remember the schools, but I won't get into Harvard. And if I don't get into Harvard, I won't get into Yale Law School. And if I don't get into Yale Law School, I'll be on the street. (laughs) And I was like, whoa. But for him, it was so real. And, you know, for, who knows, family and school, but basically piped that in, you know. And it came to be believed as, as a sort of, well, that's just a natural, that's a natural jump, you know. But the thing is, we laugh, you know, and, and it struck me. But we also have those jumps. We have those jumps too. And to, to question these, these leaps of non-logic that we have.
now the whole area is why why is there so much fear for us around the approval of others that we so uh, we're almost beggars uh, for the approval of others why why is that so strong why why does that have so much power in our lives i think part of the reason is that we don't yet perhaps have enough inner resources of well-being of happiness so we're looking out for it. We're looking, as, as you know, Fred has, has talked, we're looking out to get something. And a lot of what we're looking out for is someone else to say, you're fantastic, or you're beautiful, or at least you're, you're not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes it's like, even that, isn't that good enough? You know? Why does that have so much power? Because we don't have yet the inner resources. We don't, and, and this is a huge question in practice. What is it that builds my inner reservoir of, of sense of well-being, sense of happiness in life, so that I'm not so much a beggar at, uh, for the approval of others, those that I know, those that I don't know? So earlier I just mentioned fear is often around future thinking. It's often around you know, thoughts of the future. Here's another quite challenging question that, again, we all, all of us, every single one of us needs to ask ourselves. Do we really know how to really take care of the future? Really take care of the future? Do, do we, are we really sure about that? What is it that builds this, uh, that deepens this inner reservoir of happiness, of well-being? What is it? Where does that come from? So the Buddha, as some of you will probably know, has all these lists of factors to cultivate and develop and generosity and loving kindness and compassion and calmness and mindfulness. And it goes on and on and on. And sometimes it can just seem like chewing cardboard, you know, all these lists. What he's pointing to, part of what he's pointing to is these are factors, these are qualities to develop that that build, uh, that widen that and deepen that reservoir of well-being. And it's so important for us. It's so important. And we can cultivate them and develop that reservoir. And that's one aspect of taking care of the future in a very genuine way. And it's interesting. I think we can hear that and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. How, how many of us really live that way? Really live that way? To me, it's a, it's a sign of really great maturity in practice that one is genuinely putting one's eggs in that basket, that genuinely one's, uh, what's the word, investment portfolio is in terms of inner, inner qualities of heart. One, one knows unshakably that's how to safeguard the future in, in the most fundamental and real way. So this, this huge importance of cultivation and also taking care of the future. We take care of the future through our relationship to the present. If, our, if the relationship to the present is one of uh, openness, of kindness, of interest, of attentiveness, of letting go, of non-clinging, taking care of the present, taking care of the relationship to the present, and the future tends to take care of itself. Those two things together, the cultivation and the relationship to the present, that's really, really taking care of the future. And then in a very real way, and I really 
mean this in a very real way, what happens is there is a decrease, a genuine decrease in our worry about the future. Will I be okay? Will it be okay for me? Will I have enough money? Will I be secure? Will I be alone? Will my partner leave me? Will this, will that? There's genuinely, genuinely a decrease in that kind of worry. So just finally, all this fear is kind of centered around the self and the self-sense, the ego sense. And I I think Fred is going to talk about this self, uh, I think, tomorrow night. So I'm actually not going to go into it except just to say that that's a hugely important area for investigation. Any real um, full, full inquiry into fear needs to look at this question of self. I just want to touch on one other aspect that's there in the teachings. We tend to assume that there's the thing or the event or the situation that I'm afraid of. There's that thing, event, situation, and there's the fear. And we tend to assume that that's that and this is this and that they're separate and independent. But they're not. They're not. So it's not, at, at one level, it, it is the case that there's the object and there's a relationship to it. But at another level, perhaps, it's not, it's not actually the case that here's the thing, here's the event and situation, here's my relationship to it. They're not separate. Fear colors our perception. It colors our thought, it shapes our thought, it shapes our perception of the object of fear. Now, sometimes that's extremely obvious. You know, there's fear around and we're seeing ghosts and we're seeing shapes moving in the dark, you know, whatever. We actually, you can see this. As I say, it's quite obvious it's at, at, at a certain level, and, but we need reminding of it. We need reminding of it. How much in a situation is the fear shaping the thing it seems I'm afraid of? But it goes further, it goes further. Anything is always being, some, a thing, an event, a situation, it's always being shaped by consciousness. It's always being shaped by consciousness, by the mind state in consciousness, whether it's fear or whatever it is. If I believe that what is in the present, that the present moment is not if I believe it has a kind of independent existence, independent of of the mind and the way the mind is looking at it, then I'm believing in a kind of really existent, inherently existent, independently existent present. If I believe in the present that way, it's inevitable that there will be fear of the future. It, It will follow, to borrow an analogy from the Buddha, like the wheels of the cart follow the ox that pulls it. It's inevitable if I believe in the reality, in the inherent reality of the present. What I see, though, if I if I if I really go into this, if we really go into this, is that the present and the past are we say they're empty of inherent existence. They depend on how we look at them. And you can see this from the past. Past seems this way when I'm in this mood. When I'm in another mood, a relationship, or how my childhood was, or whatever, it just seems different. Present as well. The future, where fear goes to the future, that will become present and it will become past. And it's empty in the same way. 
when we begin to really genuinely explore this and get this sense, it's, it's almost like we can't believe fear in the same way. can't believe it. So all, all that that I've talked about tonight, all that's actually available for us, available through the teachings and through practice to us. They're all, all ways to work with fear. And very, as I said at the beginning, a very real possibility for us in our lives to move towards, uh, to open a genuine sense of being free from the power of fear in our lives. Just sit quietly together for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.